Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about their fave genre film, maybe one that influenced their own work. Today, I'm so very happy to welcome writer, director, Lee Janyuk. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Now the niceties are done. Yes. I'm going to introduce you to Lee's work with a short bio, just in case you're not familiar. Lee is a native Ohioan, Midwestern. I'll look for the accent as we go through. I try to hide it. Yeah, I do as well. Um, <laughs> and she started out as an actor in the theater. Um, she studied creative writing and comparative literature at NYU before she moved to Chicago and started experimental er, experimenting with short film. Is that correct? It is, except it was comparative religion at comparative NYU. Comparative religion. And I was actually getting... I should have... I looked at that bio. I know. She looked at it and she approved I it. She's totally, like, yep, I did that. I totally nope, went she over didn't. that. Comparative um, religion, though. That's actually... Very uh, different. It's very different. And to me, I find it more interesting, Good. I would say. In Chicago, I was actually in a grad program for that as well. Really? Yes. Wow. We, okay. So yes. if we get into any we kind of like religious of philosophical questions later, this is going to be very interesting. <laughs> so after that, she moved to Los Angeles and she worked for Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, production company. Is it Appian Way? Is Appian that, Way. Yeah. yeah, Appian Way. Um, and then she started working on her own feature as a writer and director. And in 2014, her debut, Honeymoon, a, a psychological and body horror thriller, premiered at South by Southwest. So Honeymoon stars Rose Leslie of Game of Thrones fame and Harry Treadaway of Penny Dreadful as newlyweds. And these newlyweds go out to a family lake house in the off season and encounter some strange happenings in the woods. One night, the husband finds his wife shivering and naked outside, and he begins to suspect she may no longer be the woman he married. Why are you lying to me? I was sleepwalking. I'm confused. I found footprints. It was muddy. They weren't ours. I know someone was in the woods with you, and I know someone was just outside looking in our windows. This is me standing here. Okay? It's me. I love you. I love you so much. But I, I need you to talk to me. That's very, right. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's very pertinent to the film we're going to be discussing, too. Um, Lee's also directed episodes of Scream, the TV series, and Outcast, And now she's working on the Fear Street anthology for Fox and Chairman. Chernin. Chernin. Yes. Okay. Um, which I think a lot of people who are in our age group are going to be very excited about. They should be. It's so exciting. And it's actually, <laughs> well, it's really exciting. I can't talk a ton about it, but it's three movies that we're going to film at once. Like, as we would film a television show normally, and then the distribution model is going to be really interesting and new, too. So, All right. We'll see what happens with that. Yep. So the movie that Lee suggested that we uh, talk about today is the 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. They come from a dying world. They drift through the universe, pushed on by the solar winds. They adapt, and they survive. The function of all life is survival. Can you tell me why that's one of your favorite films? Well, it's interesting. I felt torn when we were deciding which one because I really like the 56 version, too. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's actually... It's kind of the whole series of body snatcher films that yeah. I really appreciate. There are like five of them or something. There are so many. Yeah. And some are better than others. But I like the idea 
that there's like kind of a core theme of identity and how well you can know a person um, that carries through and it's kind of reinterpreted depending on what decade the movie's being. Yes. And so it was one of the big influences, which is very clear if you if you watch my movie on Honeymoon. Um, so, yeah. So that's why I chose it. Wonderful. So for those who haven't seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1978 version, which we'll be talking about mostly, but a little bit of the 50s one we'll get into. Um, today's episode will give you some spoilers. Just just so you know. But that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you want to pause and peep Invasion of the Body Snatchers, please, please, please do so now. And if you're back, hopefully you have seen it. Now let's introduce Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Written by W.D. Richter and directed by Philip Kaufman in 1978, Invasion of the Body Snatchers stars Donald Sutherland as Matthew, an inspector of the San Francisco Health Department. After a particularly rainy day, his co-worker Elizabeth, played by Brooke Adams, brings home some flowers with a weird gelatinous substance on it, and her boyfriend suddenly becomes very distant. Matthew takes her to meet his psychologist friend, played by a truly creepy Leonard Nimoy, but a man jumps on their car on the way and warns them that they, quote, are coming. But who's they? We don't know yet. While hanging out with the good doctor, Matthew's friend Jack finds him in an, with an urgent request. He and his wife have found a strange humanoid form in their mud baths, and it looks a little like Jack. Matthew then breaks into Elizabeth's home and finds her asleep, with a weird new double of her growing in her garden. Thus begins a wild, terrible night where the group attempts to stave off sleep for fear they will be turned into pod people while they're out. After Matthew's house gets raided, the group takes to the streets, losing a couple members along the way. Literally everyone in San Francisco is becoming a pod, and it's up to Matthew and Elizabeth to maintain their humanity. That's it in a nutshell, but dear Which God, just, it's so much more than normal. that. Yeah, it's so, it's so much more than that. It really is. Um, and, you know... I immediately would like to talk about the cinematography in this film Ugh. because it is one of the things that does make this movie stand out in its genre, um, a horror sci-fi genre. You know, um, sometimes it can be schlocky, but uh, the director, Phil Kaufman, really took his time with how he wanted it to look. You know, he, he wanted to redefine the genre, and he did. So we've got Michael Chapman who shot this film, right? So great. It's 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 actually and I think that, you know, that's actually one of the things that defines it more than anything else is that the craft is so it's so on point so much. I don't want to say better than you expect, but it is it's 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 better than you expect for most genre films. And it was funny. I was rewatching it this past week and it just reminded me that how few movies, period, we get to see anymore that have that level of control and, frankly, just decision-making. Every single frame, yes. there was a decision being made. Um, one of the ones that really strikes me, and is a tiny one, but, like, there's a scene where I think that Donald Sutherland's character just got off the phone, and it's a slow push-in that then goes in on the um, phone cord. Oh, it's Brooke like, Adams. Is that, it's Brooke Adams. That go, and the phone cord goes slithers in, and it's like every piece of that was constructed from the production design. They knew that they wanted that shot ahead of time. They actually didn't. 
What is that crazy? I'm, I'm going to throw that in there. That they that was one shot. This is this is one of the things that makes me think because I was just like, oh, okay, like you storyboarded this, and then when I was like doing my research, I was like, wait, holy shit, you guys improvised that? They were on set. Michael Chapman and Philip Kaufman were on set, and the phone started retracting. The cord started retracting into the wall, and both of them at the same time were like, ooh, we that's have to good. Get that. And so they pushed in, and they got a, oh my God, um, that's an insert crazy. shot on that. Isn't it? I the I think that the improvisational skills of a, a cinematographer are um, – like people don't talk about what that means to yeah. cinematography because you can plan and you can – and in fact, they did um, they did watch a ton of film noir movies because they wanted right. to make this a, a color noir, mm-hmm. which is – you know, it hadn't really been done, but they were like, how can we use yeah. shadows in this way and still get, you know, shadow play on the walls? Tons of that. Yeah. Um, really interesting oh, There's shots. that one shot when it's like a big wide and they're running across the street into the pier. Oh, God, it's The beautiful. shadows are amazing. Yeah, the shadows are huge. Yeah. They're definitely – like they're lighting uh, from the bottom yeah. up and they're, they're just – it's it's a, so ominous. Everything about it. But so much of um, uh, what Chapman had done, I think he – it seems like he maybe learned two years earlier when he was on Taxi Driver. (laughs) That might be. He may have learned a lot from that. You know, like there's because obviously, you know, there's there's a lot of street scenes yeah. and you get that here. It's in San Francisco, so it's a different vibe. But I guess that apparently they just wrapped the cord of the camera up for those street scenes and it was just the like an actor and then uh Philip and Michael and they just kind of wandered around to get this verite. Well, it's funny because the I think the handheld work is amazing in the entire film and something it's this weird thing that y- you feel the city feels very real and it yes. feels very alive and yet there's a distance between you, I think, as the viewer and, frankly, you're supposed to feel like you're in the same POV as the characters and this world around you. And that doesn't happen easily. No. every sing- From the very beginning of the film, when you don't even know what's going to happen yet, you don't feel good. <laughs> and that's – I think that's one of my – that's what really – it drove me when I was making Honeymoon, that – you can find very benign situations, simple human interactions. Mm-hmm. And with, you know, carefully crafted camera work, it all feels terrible, it, which I think is yeah. my favorite thing. It builds paranoia yes. in this. And there's one scene in particular where there's a lot of people who go into, I think, the bedroom or a living room. I can't remember. But, a, like, it's Leonard Nimoy. It's um, Donald Sutherland. It's it's all mm-hmm, the actors. Mm-hmm. They all go into a room. And I guess that they were facing um, a, a shortage of days, and they had no idea what they were going to do. That scene was going to cost them four days. But instead, Michael Chapman put the camera on his shoulder, stood in the center of the room and was just like, act it out. And they <laughs> they got it done in an hour because he was just pushing in and he was he was like pulling focus over here and then moving over here and then just kind of following all of these characters as they, they walked around the room. Yeah, just floating. Yeah. Which is interesting because he is a cinematographer also um, uh, is was unorthodox where he would actually come to actor rehearsals to see blocking beforehand. Oh, interesting. And often uh, if an actor did something interesting on set, he would move lights around in to the adapt moment. To that. Yeah, that, that's great. I mean, I think that and that, I think that stuff like that is what you need to get that to get the excitement and the kind of freshness of the performance and not kind of put the actors into that box. And I think you feel that throughout the entire movie. And it's so interesting. I am so happy to know now. Yeah. The behind the scenes of it. I, I well, I mean, it's also it makes me feel like if I'm making films, then it, it, it would be giving me 
confidence to be like, okay, maybe I could decide some things in the moment if I have to, you know, trust yeah. your instincts and prepare as much as you can, but but trust that something might change. Well, and you can... that, that's really, that's interesting to pivot a little bit. Well, I, as you mentioned, I directed a couple episodes of Scream for MTV, and that show has a very tiny schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, and they shoot in Louisiana. It's raining a lot there, thunder, lightning. And that was that job was the first thing that I did after Honeymoon, um, the, one of the episodes. And I went down there, and we had planned this entire episode around a trailer that was in the woods. And we loaded into the woods, and it started lightning. Yeah. And then it didn't stop for six hours until we finally reached our insurance day. But then there was panic that we were going to not be able to make the rest of our days. Yeah. Um, And so what basically happened is that the it's actually crazy. At the last minute, we decided that the entire episode, we needed to find a different cover set. So everything that was built around being outside in the woods and in this little trailer moved into this abandoned bowling alley. (laughs) And so that was the episode that I did the first season. And we had the first time I saw it, the first time the crew had seen it was the night before we started shooting in it. The script had to be totally kind of massaged to mm-hmm. try to fit this new environment. It was the most insane thing that I could have imagined at that point. And at the end of the day, also the po- the bowling alley felt a little poisonous, I'm going to say. that the I'm sure it was safe. I'm sure it was safe. <laughs> but it was insane inside of there. Um, I think that it the episode really benefited from that crazy change of environment, we we were able to find and shape things that we never – it would have been like the lighting would have not have been as great out in the woods because it's hard to do with the yeah. low budget. And I think that in the end, that really taught me that, as you're saying, that sometimes when the gun is to your head, everything gets better. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes but it doesn't. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't. But it, it can. And so like being able to go in kind of like with your eyes open and like let's try to make this work – can really, I think, help everything. So, um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about mood, but we are going to take a quick break because um, I'd love to get into both the sound design and the score of this yes. film, and uh, we'll we'll come right back and, and talk about that. In a world. Dominated by Dude Bro Movie Podcasts. A world where Casey Affleck has an Oscar and Angela Bassett does not. Only one podcast is brave enough to call bullshit. Who shot ya? With Ricky Carmona. A lot of people don't know Porgs, Puerto Rican. Alonzo Duralde. I would eat Oakjaw. <gasps> April Wolf. I want to interrupt and say yes. that the fish man was real sexy. Drea Clark. I have a real soft spot for King Kong. And women of color. I was like, damn! Right, Kugel got final cut! Kugel got final cut! <laughs> it's literally the world's saddest orgy. <laughs> <laughs> and believe me, I'm from San Francisco. I've been to some sad orgies. Who shot ya? Listen every Friday on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back. You're listening to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here talking with Lee Janiak today about 
Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Let's talk about the music. Um, It's one of my favorite uh, things of this, uh, elements of this movie. It's it's almost difficult to to describe what Denny Zendel was doing with this score. Um, He had been experimenting apparently with electronic music for 10 years already before he was asked to incorporate it into the score. And it would be, you know, it would be electronic and orchestral, right? Yeah. So that's... Crazy. It's very new at that time. (laughs) Um, And his task was also to make the electronic elements feel organic because the movie was dealing with so much organic material. You've got rain, mud, earth, vines. So they wanted it to reflect in the music as well, which obviously, yeah, it makes sense. Um, So the result is this kind of buzzy vibration often under the full orchestra, which is you can... It's one of those things where you're talking about um, the beginning, where you said from the beginning you feel off kilter. Something doesn't seem right. And I think a lot of it does have to do with that setup of that kind of buzziness and the, you know, it doesn't seem. There's a sense, I think, of it's this weird sense of the hive underneath everything. Like no matter what, you've just got this unnerving buzz underneath. And I think you're right. I think it's introduced extremely early. And then it he kind of dials it up and down depending on where. And I think the film is actually a great, great um, uh, example of how sound design and score can be intertwined in a way that just it, – it, you can't really tell where the, the score ends and begins and where the sound design starts and ends, which I think is perfect. It's something that we tried to do on Honeymoon with my composer, Heather McIntosh. Who's a friend of mine. Oh, Heather's amazing. I was very excited to see that she had actually composed uh, your, for your film. Yeah, she's great. And so Heather worked really closely with Trevor Gates and um, my sound designer to create this sound that was trying to achieve a similar thing that they do in Invasion, which is to feel that organic thing but weirdly with – something that's completely inorganic, which I would say is the electronic music. I think, not to pivot off of this, but I think that another great example of it that I really love is um, the music in The Nick. And because I think that that show has that same kind of bodies. Bodies are driving that Mm -hmm. show and the way that bodies are changing and becoming. and, And then you have this crazy electronic score that somehow feels organic to it. And I think that that's a really interesting kind of intersection. And, Anyways. you know, Denny pioneered that. There was no one else who was doing that kind of thing. And also, for people who aren't familiar, Denny um, is, uh, Denny Zendel, he's a, he was practicing psychologist at the time. Still, you know, like, was practicing through through all of this. He only did one film score. That is crazy. I know. I saw that. Right? Uh, yes, it's insane. He only did one film score, and it was this one, and it's so beautiful. But apparently for 10 weeks, he was working, like, 22-hour days. Well, it he, worked. Like, he took a hiatus from his <laughs> psychology work. He wasn't, he was like, oh, you know, tell patients to to take a hike for a little while and then scored this and was just like, never again. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one of the other interesting things that Kaufman, I'll give credit to Kaufman here, is that in the editing of the score, I noticed that a lot of the, um, you'll be in the middle of a melody in mm-hmm. a scene and then he'll cut out. So the song or the piece, the clip that he's using, doesn't come to an end. So you'll be like on an up note where normally you would be ending on a lower note. And then he'll just cut and you'll be right into the next scene. 
And usually the transition he uses is a really loud, insane sound design moment. I think there's one where it's um it's like the alarm clock going off. Yeah. And it's so disorienting. So again, I think I come back to every decision that was made on the film is pushing you towards this feeling of disorientation and not knowing not feeling safe. You're never feeling calm or safe once the movie begins. Yeah, one of the things, I mean, to go back to sound design working so well with the score too, uh, Ben Burt was the sound um, uh, designer for this film, and he had just come off of Star Wars. He was working on Star Wars, and they instructed him to stay in the Bay Area just in case another movie came along (laughs) that he needed to work on. So he actually recycled some things that he wasn't using in Star Wars or did use in Star Wars and, and used them in different ways, specifically from Darth Vader. That's amazing. There was um uh you can definitely tell that he's using kind of like breathing and heartbeat sounds mm-hmm. and the breathing sounds some of those came from him wearing scuba gear and putting a mic into the breathing apparatus. Ugh, I love it. And that's what he was using when he was doing Darth Vader too. Right. So he was just kind of um he used a lot of that audio and then just manipulated it into kind of like lower, quieter tones for the, it was just kind of seething for these pods that were right, growing. So you just have this thing that's alive underneath everything. Yes, pulsing. yes. I don't want to go off the sound because we may want to talk about it more but I now you've reminded me that one of the craziest things about this movie I think is one that the garbage trucks are such a huge important part of it and I think that that combined with the fact that Donald Sutherland is literally a health inspector yes this is not normal that would never happen no. in, like his character would never just be this health inspector who's walking around making sure that there aren't rat turds in soup yeah and I, I think that it it's so it's so interesting to me to take to just like take your camera, which would normally be trained, I think, or your story would be trained on a police officer, yeah, or some like very like you know sexy occupation, and then just tilt it a little bit to the left, where we're like, what if actually the person that was figuring out everything that was going on is this kind of? It's not exactly a blue collar job, but it's not it's not refined. It's not. I don't know. I just love it. And I love that there's that. And then you have the evil garbage men going around town. I yeah. just, it's it's so perfect. And it's just not something that we would do anymore. His character was originally supposed to be a jazz saxophonist. Right. Exactly. So that's like exactly <laughs> the kind of decision that you're like, that would be really cool. Also, can I just ask now that we're talking about this, is Donald Sutherland's character supposed to be sexy in this? Wait, I'm sorry. When is Donald Sutherland not sexy? Okay, so that's that's my that's the answer. Because I was like thinking about it, and I was like, I'm not. He's not a traditional leading man. I know that he had his moment for this, and and don't look now. But still, that perm is like. I mean, okay. I guess it's, it's on the edge of it's beautiful. It's on the edge of of beautiful and not. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, continue. I got us off track there. For no, a no. I, actually, I love the special effects in Invasion because it is also um, surprisingly very low tech. Very low tech. Like so low tech. Like the <laughs> the early shots of like the other planet is just like plexiglass sprayed black. Yeah. With some divots in it to look like stars when the, when the mm-hmm. light hits it, and then like uh, a two by eight piece of like plywood that it, has like dirt and shit all over it. And then what do you think the little, like, you know, the spores are... Because that, to me, looks like some kind of weird projection of, like, a microscope. But I don't know what it is. So I I found that out, and it is... um, 
uh, Philip Kaufman, like they could not figure out how to do this. And they were all in San Francisco and they were like, oh, my God, we need to figure this out. <laughs> they were freaking out. And Philip Kaufman went to like a local art supply store and found like this gel, like some kind of gel. Oh. And they just put it in water. And um, the second that it hit water, it started becoming kind of organic. It started moving around. Um, oh, and like and, floating. It look, yeah, it looks exact, like. Yeah. And so they filmed it. They they got a shit ton of it and they put it in water and they just got a, these uh, ultra close ups and they just started filming it kind of moving around in the water and then were able to to use it from there. I'm curious if you know the answer to this question. So the the beginning, that part of on the planet is not my favorite part. Mm-hmm. of the movie. Um, and it made me think a little bit about the 56 version, which has this notorious kind of story that the studio didn't like the ending of the yeah. 56. And so they had to craft this other frame story around it to kind of, I think in that case, it was to make it more uplifting and not yeah. so kind of like <laughs> everything is going to be terrible forever. Yeah. Um, and when I was watching this again recently, I kind of thought, I just wondered, was that also kind of not to make it more uplifting, but to fill in some questions? Because as we know, kind of studio filmmaking doesn't always love having any open ends. And so I was wondering if that was like an addition to the story at the end or if it was always part of what they how they wanted to open the movie, because then the movie starts and you feel like this is okay. I get it. It, As far as I know, it was always how it was going to open. Got it. The the ending, however, of the 78 version was kept a complete secret from everyone. Which is amazing. Right? I, th- I mean, it. it's definitely, I'm sure when you look online, the top of many lists of best kind of movie endings of all time. Um, I, I mean, for I, sure. I understand that the, you know, the, the director and the writer, they didn't want to get everyone just down because... It's, yeah, it, like it, it's a movie about paranoia and things get really sad and and it's scary. There's obviously humor in it too because you've got yes. Jeff fucking Goldblum in it, but playing the exact same character as in Jurassic Park. Exactly. I wanna... <laughs> yes, I wish I almost wish that Malcolm. Veronica Cartwright could also play uh, uh, you know part in Jurassic Park too. But um, <laughs> we at least had Laura Dern, which yes. is wonderful. Um, the but the ending is it's you know I don't want to get too much into it Definitely. but I, but we do know that it is improvised and um the the two actors that are in it um like one was given an order i love it and the other one had to react to whatever that one did so they so the other one didn't know veronica cartwright she didn't know <laughs> that is crazy <laughs> we're really we're really walking around this end i know i know i, I think mean, we shouldn't talk about it but that's a that's I'm, yeah, wow. we don't we don't talk about it too yeah. much, but wow, oh my god. Could you imagine like you get to set and you're like, you know, you tell one of your other big actors, you know, like just act however you might act when you find out this news. Like whatever <laughs> it is, just just go for it. And and her reaction is just perfect. I still think about it and it's yeah. so weird. It's so weird the way that so she weird. reacts. So weird. Uh, so please. Yes. I mean, we're dancing around this, but go yes. back and, and if you have seen it, rewatch that ending if you haven't. Dear God, watch this movie. Oh, so good. And uh, I wanted to get into the, uh, I mean, you were talking about deciding what uh, 
like the mood would be, the sound would be for kind of your your others in mm-hmm. your film and honeymoon. You were mm-hmm. just like, what are they going to sound like? What are they going to do? Yeah. Um, Art Hindle, who had played um, Brooke Adams' boyfriend in the film, Art Hindle, who was also in like The Brood and Black Christmas, all within a like a two year period, <laughs> which is insane. That is um, insane. It it was um, it was him in the film who was the first to get potted you know, yes. quote unquote potted. So he was brought in really early into the discussions on how potted people would act in this world. And he said, quote, a lot of people played it sort of like you remove the emotion and become almost flat. We didn't want it to be flat. We wanted the character to appear to be able to work his way through society by thinking what emotion the human would be looking for and pretending to be that. Something's come up, Elizabeth. I have to go right back out again. Now? Were we going to the game? The Warriors. I know. I gave the tickets to a patient. You're not going to see tonight's game? No choice. Jeffrey, what is the matter with you? I know something's wrong. I'm fine. I just have to go to a meeting. A meeting? What kind of a meeting? Elizabeth, I don't think I have to justify my every move to you. Jeffrey, this isn't like you. Wherever you are, if you're making a zombie film, if you're making a vampire film, if you're making a pod film, <laughs> you have to decide the rules yeah. of your own environment and, and really stick to those. And and I, I love how this turned out because they aren't flat. They, they aren't flat at all. No. no. I mean, there is no there is no room for hate or love, but at the same time, like they're like they're kind of calculating. Yeah, that's the thing. I think every time you see their gaze staring at someone, you know, you feel like. Exactly. That they're calculating, that they're trying to take a mental list of like, oh, maybe when you move this way, this is what you do. Or when someone says this to you, you would be angry in this way. It's interesting. We had a lot of discussions like that with with Rose on my film because Rose was changing. Yeah. And for her, she, you know, part of part of her change in Honeymoon is it's a slow change. It doesn't happen overnight. And there's a bit of like where the pieces of your humanity stay and go. What are the things that are left behind? Mm-hmm. Um, and there, Because her brain is... It's hers. But the way that we thought about it was that almost as if you're transferring, like, um, your hard drive over yeah. to another hard drive. And so, like, the pieces, all it doesn't all go at once. It takes a second, and you're losing pieces and pieces and pieces, which is, you know, ultimately in the final scene with her and Harry... Um, she knows that she wants to protect him still, but she forgets kind of the constructs that she can safely protect him. Yeah. Um, And that was a big thing of like how, where's the line? Like what kinds of things is she remembering? What kinds of things is she forgetting? And then for Harry, what do you do if you really do start seeing these small changes Mm -hmm. um, with the person that you're with? Um, The core of all of this is this thing called Capgras. Um, syndrome, which I think is maybe actually really mentioned in the 56 version of Invasion. They don't mention it in um, in the 78 one, but it's a it's a real syndrome delusion. It's called Capra's delusion syndrome, I think, um, where you believe that the people close to you, sometimes it's a person, sometimes it's multiple people, sometimes it's your house, it can be an object as well, mm-hmm. are no longer who they that. were. They've been replaced yeah. by something else. And I, I'm just I'm fascinated by that as like a thing that can happen because I think all of us, all of us have had that moment where you think you know someone so well mm-hmm. and then they just say that one little thing that your whole, the whole paradigm for that relationship shifts. And I think that that's something 
that happens specifically in in the 78 version of Body Snatchers, which is mm-hmm. like, w- w- do you just wake up one day and everyone around you is different? And I don't mean to get political. I don't want to get political. But I think there is that weird thing where, you know, can society just change in front of your eyes and you realize that you were not paying attention or mm-hmm. whatever it may be? And I don't know. I'm, I'm interested in that and the line of like how how identity can be fixed, whether or not it's individual identity or societal identity. Well, and, and I think it's it's very interesting when you hear people involved in this film uh, on different parts of it, different sides of it, talk about uh, what the meaning of the movie was. Because you've got, you know, the actors, Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams, they seemed to feel when they were making it, they were like, this is about fascism. Right. And and they very clearly felt and thought that. Whereas the writer and director, Richter and Kaufman, they um, they d- they were like, no, this is not political mm-hmm. in any manner. Um, we want it to be timeless where it can be applied to any situation. Mm-hmm. Um, Richter was talking about how um, in any, philosoph- any, any philosophical text you'll find about, you know, like how to move through the world, they always say, like, don't become a pod, basically. Right. Yeah. So, you know, for him, it was a really universal thing where it's just like, yeah, if every if everything in the world says don't become a pod, then, yeah, it will be applied to any situation that yeah. you ever come up with. And and it is very timeless. You know, you don't totally. need to understand the historical um you know, uh, uh, implications of what was happening in 1978 to get what was happening there. I mean, there definitely was paranoia. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like, for sure, there was a lot of paranoia. But um, it it wasn't um, – it, it's not necessary. No, it's not necessary. It's an intimate story, too, I think, just about individuals interacting with each other. Um, so I think that that – I think it's great. I think it's funny looking at, again, the 56 version – I think that a lot of people watch that version and think, look, it's a it's telling us about the secret communists yeah. that are everywhere that could be, you know, invading our life. And then there's also the people that are like which you know, maybe it's the same thing of just this loss of individuality. And it was all about like anti-communism, but then I think there's also that there's another side. There's another side, I guess, with what I'm saying that you can really the pod the pod Par- what is it? Not a parable. I don't know. The pod like metaphor. Allegory. Yeah, the allegory of the pods can really, really travel. It's yeah. many different things. So much mileage. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I'm also curious. In your film, you uh, – I mean, we were talking about Rose's character's actions. Mm-hmm. When you were directing her, I, I just – I wonder what you told her. Sometimes I feel like she just becomes childlike where she kind of reverts into this almost toddler state. You know, interesting, like can't find the words, has to like write and repeat things. Um, And that uh, that kind of struck me. I mean, I was wondering what kind of instruction, what kind of it's funny. It wasn't we never had a conversation specifically about like, oh, you're regressing age wise. It it wasn't as much that as it was like trying to grasp those things that were still there. So, again, this actually we looked a lot at Capgras of how and other there are other um I forget what the word is for the kind of syndrome. There's a whole group of syndromes. Yeah. <laughs> turns out where you're not recognizing things or you're recognizing things as right and one of them has to do with strictly with language where you'll start remembering you understand the word but you forget the meaning behind it yeah. or you remember the meaning but you forget the word and so there was a lot of time spent 
kind of thinking about how we could layer that onto her character. And that's one of the reasons that she's writing, like trying to remember all of the details that she thinks makes her her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, again, that was that was kind of the core thing behind all of, of Honeymoon is like, what makes you you? And how well can you ever know that? And how well can someone outside of you know that? Um, we're going to take a quick break, but I want to come back and talk a little bit about um, Brooke Adams and Philip Kaufman's relationship as actor-director and get into um, that as our final uh, goodbye. Great. So we'll be right back. Hey guys, this is Adam Conover. You may know me from my true TV show, Adam Ruins Everything. Well, guess what? Now we're doing a podcast version right here on Maximum Fun. What we do is we take all the interesting, fascinating experts that we talk to for just a couple minutes on the show, and we sit with them for an entire podcast, really going deep and getting into the fascinating details of their work. Find Adam Ruins Everything wherever you get your podcasts or at MaximumFun.org. And welcome back. You're listening to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here today with Lee Janiak discussing Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, I loved the story that Brooke Adams told this. Uh, apparently, do you remember the part where she does that weird thing with her eyes? Yes. Okay, so like Donald Sutherland, um, you know, setting up that scene. She thinks that she's crazy. And he was like, can you still do that thing with your eyes? Yes. And she does a weird thing with her eyes how did she do that i don't understand so um i i love that because apparently i mean like that wasn't not in the script it was her hanging out on set and i think she was like hanging out talking with donald sutherland right and was just like hey look at this thing i can do and then he was like whoa and then everyone (laughs) on set was just like came over to see this weird thing that she could do and they were all like whoa that's crazy and then philip kaufman was like yes we need to put this in the movie somehow and so richter had to somehow like like oh yeah okay then we'll do (laughs) the you think i'm nuts i don't think you're crazy can you still do the thing with your eyes if you're not crazy you can do the thing with your eyes <laughs> that's funny because I think I totally just cut off where you were going with this but no. I think that that moment is really amazing because like you said she's trying to think am I going crazy I feel like I'm not myself and he hones in on that thing as being the thing that should let her know that she's yeah. still herself and also it's the craziest thing it's like not especially human <laughs> Yeah, it's not especially sane. I just think it's so interesting the juxtaposition between, hey, that thing, that's what makes you you. Mm-hmm. But also, it's not like it's just weird. It's a weird thing. It's she looks like an alien when she does. Yeah, <laughs> she does. Like... And then I love how when she comes out of that weird thing, she like she kind of laughs to herself and smacks her gum. Oh, it's it's and a it's really like, great performance. Oh my god. Um, Because she's just so cute when she's done with it. And they have such a great little rapport, those two characters who are, you know, falling in love as the story progresses. Um, They're kind of seen as like this Adam and Eve uh, archetype. Um, But I I think that, you know, the the writer and the director, they really struggled with, um, which is strange, but they said that they struggled with trying to find things that um, they could present as, like, very human that um, would be worth saving. 
mm-hmm. you know, because that that's the kind of stuff that you would lose. Mm-hmm. And so they were looking for these little quirky things. Jeff Goldblum brought a lot of that. Um, and Victoria Cartwright with her kind of like manic, weird yes. hippie energy and the mud baths, like she brought a lot of that. But it was it was hard for them to come, um, you know, to a decision of what small things can we put in here that say like this is humanity and this is what's worth saving and this is why it's scary that it, we're losing it yeah this this movie could have gone another way where you're totally. like well i mean yeah there is no room for love or hate there's an advanced civilization that's yeah they got to... rid of all of the stuff yeah got rid of all of the the messy stuff yeah you don't have to deal but with I any of that but i think that there's that moment i forget where it is that they're hiding are they still in the maybe they're still in the building like the health inspection building, and they're hiding like under the desk. Oh yeah, and their faces are very, very close. Yeah, and they, and that's where they ultimately kiss. And I think it's the, it's maybe the second time that they've kissed, but this is the first time that they're really kissing each other, and not just like him kissing her. And I think that everything about that shot is perfect. It's they're on a very, very, very tight, and their faces are almost filling the screen, and you can feel their their skin pulling at each other and it's this weird thing of like they're not intellectually saying in this moment like they can't it's that thing where everything else is crazy around you Mm -hmm. but there's this calmness to their connection and I think that that's a little bit of what you're saying of that what is left with humanity um is that what's worth saving and you, you have you watched altered carbon yet oh no I haven't it's on my list it's interesting because that that does a lot of stuff too, which it's just that question of what makes you what makes you human and how many things can you change around it. I mean, I'm I for a second while you were talking, I was starting to think of that scene and I started tearing up because it is yeah. so visceral, so beautiful. And the scene where, um, you know, just following that, where, you know, Leonard Nimoy's character says there is no love, there is no hate. And she turns to Matthew and she says, I love you, Matthew. What is this supposed to do? Just a mild sedative to help you sleep. We don't hate you. There's no need for hate now. Or love. I love you, Matthew. And it's just this really beautiful, small thing. But it looks like like the performance is great because it's almost like she's panicking. And mm-hmm. she just needs to tell you it's like my last day on Earth. And I just need you to know that this thing that I have, this love, is it's real and it's there. Yes. And that's... um. Like, there's an urgency to this story. And I love um, stories that take place over a constrained timeline. Yeah, I love that, too. And, I mean, yours is like that, too. I don't know how much of that has to do with budget for some people because you're like, okay, well, you know, what can we do? Can we tell the story over, like, a weekend or one long night, you know, and then? Well, for me, it certainly wasn't. It wasn't a budget thing. It was just, like, I like having, like you said, a constraint of time and, like, how much can things change over a very compact, insane couple of days or night or whatever it is. It's something mm-hmm. that we do in Fear Street, too. It's a, it's a very small kind of timeline that we're, we're working in because I like, I like those places where what if I'm, like, going down the street, I'm driving to work today, everything is fine and normal, and then, boom, something happens, and it's going to be – like, everything can change yeah. in that blink and then watching that happen over the, the time, so – in talking about um, the Brooke and Donald moment underneath there and what makes you the, the the vestige of humanity that's like left at the end of the day. And I think, you know, in that moment, it's certainly the emotion. But I think I I think there is something about bodies, too. Like, I don't think that 
I don't know. And this actually has to do with it has to do with altered carbon as well of like, can you love someone the same? Are they still you if you're in a different body, which mm-hmm. is a lot of what, you know, invasion has to deal with as well of even if it like I think that there is a flesh, like a mind body thing that, of course, we're talking about, you know, maybe one of like the most central questions of Western civilization. Mm-hmm. But for me, that's what I love about these movies of that there is there's a gray area where you need you are you are in love with the flesh, too even though there is that mind thing. And mm-hmm. that, to me, is summed up in that little frame because, like I said, their, their their faces are right there and there's almost something primal driving them together. And then there's this other kind of free-floating emotion that's pushing them together too. Yeah. So I don't know. Someone could write a thesis, a thesis on this, right? Yeah. Like this whole – the whole idea, everything that they're bringing out, it, it does make you ponder um, life's biggest questions. And that's – I some. Sometimes think that movies don't do that enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ones that do, to me, I mean, they stand the test of time because they are, you know, uh, focused on character, but they're a global story. Yeah. And I think that that's what horror does. It's one of the reasons that I love the genre because you can kind of tell or ask these huge questions, but you're packaging it with insanity and with blood and with death and with sex and all of this other stuff so that you're still just enjoying the movie. Yes. Um, but then as you start to come away from it, you're like, oh, well, there's actually this like really big thing that's driving underneath and I can't stop thinking about it. And that, you know, for me, thinking about Honeymoon, it was always like if people then are finishing the film and just thinking a little bit of like, who is this person next to me? Like, then I feel very satisfied. Like just a little bit of like, that's creepy could really be anyone. I think anyone who's gone through a long-term relationship or who has gotten married. I got married almost two years ago. Oh, me too. Wow. That was a <laughs> it's, I mean, it's it's a scary time. You do wonder, you know, you are bonding yourself to someone and it is it's both thrilling and exhilarating, but it's a, a huge chance that you're taking. And I think that's what Honeymoon to me gets at. It, it does get at probably my biggest primal fear. That the Wait, person which that, is, that is someone different. That yeah, that yeah. my husband is some somehow suddenly someone different. Well, and I think that that you know, by the way, underneath people do change, and so can you go through that change together? Yeah, can you continue to evolve together, or is there a point in time where you wish that he or she was the person that she was when you first met? Like, are you able to evolve together? And I think that's a scary thing. It is. Yeah, I mean. Not to get political. But the thing is that, you know, you have to sometimes we, because of the time that we're in, uh, I view things through a very political lens. Yeah. And um, and that is something where I think about couples who have uh, different political um, stances in the mm-hmm. past two years have had very difficult times because this is something that you suddenly you're seeing like these underlying beliefs and these underlying systems. Yeah, that gets to the core of who you are. I My husband's um, mom and dad actually are on two different sides of of the aisle. And I always wonder. And I mean, and I understand how it works now. They just don't talk about it that much. <laughs> <laughs> That's good advice. Yeah. That's good advice. Um <laughs> 
Well, I, I think uh, we're going to wrap it up. Just so you guys know, Lee wants you to never talk about the really difficult things because that will make a happy relationship. That's <laughs> what we're going to leave it on. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I look forward me. to the Fear Street Project. I will be waiting with open arms for it. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Switchblade Sisters. Next week, we'll be talking to producer and frequent Who Shot Your co-host, Drea Clark. She will be discussing The Witch Who Came From the Sea. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. User 12335 says, As of writing this review, I have seen zero of the movies or shows discussed on this podcast. Absolutely none. And it doesn't matter. I love this podcast, and the conversations are always wonderful and i love hearing women talk in depth about subject matter they are passionate about thank you so much user 12335 and while sonic says a refreshing format with excellent interviews and insights into both the film being discussed and the interviewees working methods thank you so much too and lastly firefly twice eg says my favorite new podcast i find this wonderful insightful interviews with an entertaining genre movie background plus any discussion of near dark or the invitation and I'm all in. So am I. And if you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at, at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. And please check out our Facebook group, Facebook.com backslash groups backslash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.